Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Lizzie. Those of you who are Facebook friends with me may have seen earlier today that I found myself struggling with what to speak about tonight to share with you. I saw the same terrifying images and probably read many of the same articles and op-eds that you read this week. While you might have struggled to focus on work, so did I. I found myself at the end of the day, today, Friday, still not feeling like I had a rabbinic message worthy of this moment. Worthy of the gravity of this moment. So I was talking to a friend this afternoon about just this predicament and I burst into tears. I burst into tears for the first time in a long time. Speaking about a piece of news that you might have actually even missed buried under the torrent that began Wednesday morning with the momentous election of Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in a very unlikely place. And that continued obviously with the insurrection on our nation's capital and assault on our democracy continued Wednesday afternoon and evening. So right before that violent mob burst into the chamber. Uh, about an hour earlier, Jamie Raskin, Raskin, Jamie Raskin from Maryland stood up and everyone in the room gave him a standing ovation. And the reason is because exactly a week earlier, his son, Tommy, 25 years old, a second year law student at Harvard Law School, ended his life. He ended it with a note saying, today the illness won. I love you. I'm sorry. I recommend you all read the tribute that Jamie and Sarah wrote about Tommy's life. It describes him as a generous, an intellectual person unwilling to accept bullshit instead of truth, a fierce and fine debater, but for the right things, who bent over backwards to care for the people around him and for people on the other side of the world. And all of these qualities he had from childhood forward and in his 20s, he also suffered from debilitating depression. I asked you earlier on Facebook, what, like, what should we talk about today? If you were giving a sermon, what would you say? What do you want to hear? And what I gathered from the many comments, and by the way, if we're Facebook friends, go read them. They're brilliant and wise. Even your, like the questions and the things you want to talk about and hear about are wise. Um, I heard the desire 
for Torah and for Talmud to speak to this moment, to navigate us through, through this dark time with inspiration, with moral clarity. That is, after all, the job of a rabbi in moments like this. And, and yet, there was one comment that stood out from a friend in Washington, D.C., who said to me, just tell me what's on your heart as a mother, as a citizen, as a rabbi. And what's on my heart is so much sadness and grief because the story that I want to tell is the story we begin reading in the Torah this week. It's the Exodus. It's a story that begins in darkness, but ends in light. A story that inspires the moral imagination of generations for thousands of years. A story that has the power to topple tyrants and overcome oppressors. A story that helps me and so many people go to sleep at night because it helps us believe that the world is on the long moral arc toward justice and freedom for all people. But instead, my heart is broken. And here it is, Friday night, and I want to have that deep moral clarity and sense of inspiration. And I feel like my heart's not supposed to be broken. I'm supposed to know the right words to say for a moment like this in our country. This is just where I'm at. My heart breaks for everyone whose story was cut off before it had the opportunity to end in light. My heart breaks for the Raskins because Tommy's story didn't end in light. It ended in darkness. His parents wrote in that tribute, on this last hellish brutal day of that god-awful miserable year of 2020, when hundreds of thousands of Americans and millions of people all over the world died alone in bed in the darkness from an invisible killer disease ravaging their bodies and minds, we also lost our dear beloved son. My heart breaks for all of the families of the folks who died in this pandemic, whose stories ended in darkness. My heart breaks for black Americans who this week had to see a Confederate flag paraded through our nation's most sacred halls, insulting their humanity and mocking the idea of a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-everything society, the kind of country that I long for. My heart breaks for everyone in the middle of their story for whom light feels beyond reach. As a citizen of this country, I am embarrassed. I am furious. I am incredulous. This week, I mean, it's been hard to think about what to say because I don't have the words. I'm, I am speechless. Like all of you, I saw that this mob of insurrectionists was not subjected to remotely the kind of policing or force or consequences that we saw used against peaceful Black Lives Matters protesters all over the country and also in Washington, D.C. Instead, we actually know that in cases the Capitol Police in the building gave people directions 
told people how to find offices, took selfies with the rioters. As a mother, I'm scared for the country my Jewish children are growing up in. Watching people storm the Capitol building wearing shirts that said Camp Auschwitz, Camp Counselor, or 6MWE, 6 million weren't enough. The part of me that feels my German grandparents' trauma in my bones, in my blood, is scared of history repeating itself, not just for me and my children, but for so many, for so many people for whom the prospect of true equality, equity, justice remains elusive in this country in 2021. And to know that our president looked into a camera and said to this group of white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and said, we love you, you're special. I feel like many of you overwhelmed by the enormity of this moment and how deeply entrenched and even ancient, primal, you know, these forces of hate and, and of fear that I think undergird so much of what we're seeing are and that we need to overcome and bridge in order to create the America we believe is possible. That's where I'm at, <laughs> which is one reason I'm very grateful for Torah because Torah makes it so that I don't have to come up with the wisdom. It's there. This story has carried our people and not just our people in the darkest of times, but people all over the world for millennia insisting we play the long game, right? That week to week, we make space for our darkness and our grief and our rage and our heartbreak. But we don't allow ourselves to be defeated by it. I saw a few of you earlier said like, oh God, I didn't even realize how much I needed that breath. I'm gonna invite you to go ahead and take a few more deep breaths. I know I need it. The Torah portion this week begins with the enslavement of our people. And it also ends, by the way, with the enslavement of our people. Not The, the story doesn't end this week. It actually gets worse for the Israelites because Moses dares to speak up. And if you stop reading at the end of this week's Torah portion, you would understand and relate to what Moses says. Moses says, why, God, did you send me? Ever since I started speaking, it's only gotten worse. If the story ended here, darkness would have won. But the story doesn't end here. We are in the middle of the story. And we keep reading. We know how this story ends. It ends with liberation. 
It ends with liberation. That's the big inspiring lesson. <laughs> and, and not just with liberation for us, but an Erev Rav, a mixed multitude, the Torah says, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-everything group of freed slaves and other people who needed to get out from that constricting, limiting place, from that place where imagination was tamped down. And what they taught you was that you couldn't change things. Everyone who left Egypt, our ancestors, our great, 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 great spiritual ancestors, we're all people who took that brave, brave step into the unknown toward the experiment, really. I mean, they didn't have any, they didn't have any guarantees of how things would go, but toward the experiment of creating utopia, you know, a, a society based on the lessons of their painful past of segregation and slavery and oppression and trying to ensure that no one ever has to suffer that kind of oppression at the hands of a pharaoh again. In his book, um, in his intro to the book of Exodus, the, the book we just started reading, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes, the Exodus narrative is a critique of the politics of power of empire, hierarchical societies and the division of population into free human beings and slaves and others, the division of society into different kinds of people, creating the possibility of saying us and them. The Torah proposes a different kind of politics, not based on power, but on covenant, on mutual agreement. And what is radical about this is it defies everything that anyone at the time thought was possible, right? Most Israelites and Egyptians in this story had resigned themselves to a politics of power and domination. The insight of the Torah is that things can change, things must change, and things will change, but not by themselves. It's only when people believe that it's possible. There can be miracles when you believe, right? Only when people believe that it's possible and take those steps and those steps that some would say are naive or dangerous or too soon or pie in the sky. And that right now is what I'm holding on to. I'm being carried. I'm being held by all of the people who can see through the darkness right now toward the light and lead the way there, even as cynics and pessimists might say, it's not possible. I'm carried by the story of the Hebrew midwives who we meet this week, Shifra and Pua, who refuse to go along with the decree to kill Hebrew children, as was decreed, as was the law of the land, right? Two Egyptian, very likely women, who enacted civil disobedience on behalf of human rights and human dignity and a sense that they could actually change the future. I'm inspired thinking about Stacey Abrams, who lost her own race for governor and then led a whole state toward a future that nobody in the state believed was possible, but she knew was. I'm being lifted up by Reverend Warnock, who this week said in his victory speech, he talked about his mother and also his father, and he said the other day, because this is America, 
this woman, his mother, who used to pick cotton, the the 82-year-old hands that used to pick someone else's cotton, went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. We were told we couldn't win this election, but tonight we proved with hope and with hard work and with people by our side that anything is possible. He invoked Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and he continued, we are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. He said, I remember my dad in this moment used to wake me up every morning at dawn. It was morning, but it was still dark. It's dark right now, but morning comes. And the scripture tells us that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's from Psalm 30. It's said every morning in the Jewish prayer service. There may be weeping at night, but joy comes in the morning. Warnock's mention of the inescapable network of mutuality reminds reminds me of the community of mutuality. It's a phrase that we use at Mishkan to talk about the community we strive to be, we want to be, and in our, in our best moments we are. One in which we're accountable to one another, in which we inspire one another, in which we help each other write each other's sermons. We help each other get through difficult times. We cook for one another. We show up. We send emails and make phone calls and go for walks with and pray for people we've never met. And at moments like this, when I worry that I am not enough, I won't be able to give the right sermon, say the right words, hit the nail on the head. I know we're all wandering. (laughs) Our hearts are broken. The good news is they usually break at different times. And so we have the ability to give each other strength and inspiration. And we take turns. And our collective comfort lies not in the words that one rabbi or even two can provide, thank God, (laughs) but in how we commit to holding one another, lifting each other up, bringing each other the comfort and the hope and the inspiration and the accountability and the learning that we so desperately need to bring each other into the light. And I know we can. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune in to Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. Until then... Please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. 
This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our director of communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>